Would you turn your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 3? I'd like to continue our study together in the letter of 1 Timothy. We're working our way through the pastoral epistles. And if you would, please stand with me one more time. And we will read the text this morning together in unison. Before we read, I just want to say uh, thank you again for your patience with me as I continue to work through recovery and letting me dart out right after and, and uh, go and get some rest. I miss talking with you afterwards. Uh, thank you. Thanks for your patience with me in these, in these days of, of recovery. So, well, let's read God's Word together and then we'll ask Him to bless our time of study. 1 Timothy 3, 8-13. Let's read this together. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded." Faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for making us your household calling us out of the world and placing us into Your church, the church of the living God. We thank You for delivering the Gospel to us through the Scriptures, through faithful people who taught us the Gospel even from childhood. Thank You, Father, for what You're doing. What You have been doing over the course of ages in the church through Christ Jesus for Your glory. Thank You for letting us be part of it, filling us with Your Spirit. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your saving work, raising from the dead, ascending, and seated as Lord, interceding for us, reigning in us through the Spirit. We ask that You would this morning continue to do Your work in us. Help us to see the hope to which we have been called. Help us to see something of Your wise plan in the church as Your kingdom grows and Your purposes are unfolded. Fill our hearts with holy ambition and ability to walk as Your people, to hold up the Gospel of Jesus Christ and to hold it out to the world. Help us to be faithful. Father, without You, we can do nothing. It is a farce to think that we have any ability apart from You to live physically or spiritually. All things come from You, Father. You are the self-sustaining God. You are the One who is self-existent. And You give life and breath and everything to everything else. We pray that we would humble ourselves before You. This morning, as we open Your Word, help us to hear the authority of Your Word to be shaped by it as a local church, and to be changed into Your image. We pray this for the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. I'm thankful and I'm excited to be studying the pastoral epistles at this time with you this morning. Very grateful for that. And I want to begin this morning by sharing with you two quotations from a couple of um, commentators that I read this week. Uh, as I was preparing for a message in a couple of weeks on the end of this chapter. These were exciting to me. You know, in our, in our daily grind, unfortunately, we often forget the centrality of the church of Jesus Christ in the plan of God. And the church is not a building. The church isn't a, a meeting throughout the week. It's people in whom God is at work. And 
And these letters that we're going through, these pastoral epistles, are meant to shape us into an effective God-glorifying church to, to, to be for the glory of God. Warren Wearsby said this, the pastoral epistles are guidebooks for the conduct of the local church. Scores of books have been published in recent years purporting to tell us how to start, build, and increase a local church. And some of them contain good counsel. However, the best counsel for managing a local church is found in these three inspired letters. John Stott, another well-known commentator, both of these men are with the Lord now, says one of the surest roads to the reform and renewal of the church is to recover a grasp of its essential identity as God's household, the church of the living God, and the pillar and foundation of the truth. I'm, I'm growing in my eagerness to get to the last three verses of this text with you, 14 through 16, so that Lord, being, Lord willing will be in a couple of weeks for us to, by God's grace, understand more clearly what does the word mean when we are called the household of God, the church of the living God, the, the pillar and buttress of the truth. That in itself ought to change our lives. Understanding that that is who God has called us to be by the Holy Spirit. And of course, that's the, the core of this entire letter. Verse 14, let me read it to you again. Paul writes, chapter 3, verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Indeed, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That is the key to this letter. The Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul's pen is telling us who we are called to be as individuals and corporately. Now, being the pillar of and buttress of the truth, being the household of God, the church of the living God, we are called to behave as people who joyfully live under the leadership of Christ. And, and we're called to exist in the world, not only speaking the message of the Gospel clearly and accurately, but living lives that reflect, that adorn the Gospel. And, and Paul details how the ascended Christ has commanded His people to live as His church until He returns. I want to remind you that this letter comes with divine authority. Look at, look at verse 1 again of chapter 1. Paul right off the bat says, this, I Paul, I'm writing to you, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. The apostle Paul was commissioned as an apostle by the authority of God and therefore writes as an apostle with the authority of God. And then verse 3 brings up a word that Paul uses often in this text. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And so this letter is full of the charge, the commission, the command of God down through the Apostle Paul and to the people of his church. Now, one of the main themes of the pastoral epistles is the behavior of the women of Christ's church. We've begun to see that in this letter. This letter not only addresses the men, but it addresses very specifically the women of Christ's church. Let me show you some of the texts, even that we've already been through. The Holy Spirit, through the, Paul of, the pen of Paul, it gives us a major emphasis. It begins in chapter 2, verses 9-15. through 15. It speaks of the, the dress and the discipleship and the devotion of women in the body of Christ. In chapter 3, the, the chapter we're in right now, there is certainly implications for how the wives of elders ought to behave themselves in the church. And as we'll look this morning, the wives of deacons. You'll notice in chapter 5, 
that there, there is inspired for us there an explanation of the relationship between men and women in the church. I love how Timothy, Timothy is instructed to treat younger women as sisters with all purity, older women as mothers. And then later on in chapter 5, we have instruction about the support and ministry of older widows in the body of Christ. And the command of younger widows in the body of Christ. To them, that they ought to marry if God provides and bear children. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6 talks about the vulnerability of weak women to false doctrine. And they ought to be protected by the body of Christ. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5 speaks of the role of older women and younger women in the body of Christ and, and the discipleship relationship that should exist between them. So there is many specific texts in the pastoral epistles about the role of women in the body of Christ. And this emphasis means that the character, the conduct, the daily ministry of the women of the local church is extremely important. It is vital to the ministry of the church and just as important as the ministry of the men. You know, wherever Christianity goes, wherever the Scripture goes, it elevates the view of that that culture has of their women. That has always been true throughout history. But the converse is true as well in that the women of the local church have the potential to do as much harm in the body of Christ as anyone else should they choose to conduct themselves in a way that dismisses or opposes the plan of Christ for them. And that's why the Apostle Paul addresses the women in the pastoral epistles and why he takes the time to consider the wife of the deacon as a vital part of the qualification of the men who are aspiring to be deacons in the body of Christ. And that's what we see here in verse 11. So the main idea that we're going to talk about today is the same as it's been for a few weeks now. Because the office of deacon is a critical role in the body of Christ, we must affirm only the men whom the Holy Spirit has chosen. Well, how does a church go about affirming the men that God has chosen for the office of deacon? Well, we've, we've looked at the first two qualifications, and you can see the outline in your notes. We evaluate the personal character of the prospective deacon. We've looked at that together. You employ the testing of the prospective deacon, verse 10. And then in verse 11, we're going to look this morning, evaluate the wife of the prospective deacon. This point has several subpoints that we are going to look at today that are very important for us to work through. Verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, the first part of this particular point is going to be somewhat technical for us. A little less devotional, maybe, than what we are used to. But it's going to be very important for us to understand the position of our church in this text as we understand this text. The first question that we really need to deal with when we consider evaluating the wife of the prospective deacon is when we look at verse 11 and we see their wives, we have to ask ourselves the question, does Paul mean wives of the deacons or does he mean deaconesses or female deacons? Because many people interpret this text as deaconesses or female deacons. So let's look at this together. And I'll, and I'll go slowly and we can see what comes of it. And if you have questions along the way, please jot them down and send them to me by email. And I can, we'd love to work through things with you and uh, see where the Lord takes us with this. First of all, you have the two options. Really, I don't know of another interpretation of this text. We're either when, when the verse 11 says their wives, we're either talking about the wives of the deacons or female deaconesses. 
Is this a debated issue among the church? Yes, it is. There's people that have different opinions about this. But I want us to be careful as we come to this text to understand, is this a dividing issue? No, this isn't. In fact, the seminary where I was trained, the church that is associated with the seminary, believes that this text means deaconesses, female deacons. So, other people that I know take this as being Wives. And that's the position that, that we're going to hold as a church as well. And we've, we've talked through this in Sunday school a couple of years ago now, but I want to go over this with everybody together because it does make a difference, obviously. How a local church interprets 1 Timothy 3.11 will result in a different practices in the church, specifically affirming females as deaconesses. Is that what the Scripture would call us to do? So so since it's a very important issue and a challenging text for interpretation, I want to look at six factors that come into play when making this decision. What does this text mean? First of all, the definition of the word. If you look in your Bible and you look at verse 11 and you look simply at the word, their wives, that's the word we're thinking of, If you looked up that word in a Greek dictionary, what would you find? (laughs) You would find that word means either wives or women. The word can mean either. And that's why the word itself is inconclusive. So it's not really a a nail in the coffin, as it were, a, a, a final part of the discussion. It can mean either. All through the Scriptures, the New Testament, that word has taken on either either interpretation or translation, wife or woman. The second concept that comes into the discussion is the usage of the word deacon or servant. Now, up here I have two abbreviations at the beginning of of these paragraphs. I put M and W together, meaning men and women. This is the, the way that the person who believes that deacons can be a man or a woman would interpret this particular text. The other abbreviation, M-O, means men only. Okay, So these are the different opinions of how to interpret this text. Now, men and women, the person who would say, I believe that their wives, is referring to both men and women, would say, well, the word diakonos, the word for deacon that we see in the New Te- all over the New Testament, it's used for Phoebe, who is a female, right, in Romans 16.1. And she was associated as a deacon or diakonos of the church in Sancreia. Well, there you go then. Because Phoebe was called a diakonos in Romans 16.1, that means that we should take 1 Timothy 3 to refer to deaconesses. But that's not necessarily the case when we also look other places and we see the word, the word diakonos, it simply means servant or minister. And of its 29 uses in the New Testament, it's only translated deacon five times in the ESV. That's in, and all five of those occurrences are in Philippians 1.1 and 1 Timothy 3, or 1 Timothy 3 our, our text right here. In fact, we can look at other examples of people who are called that title and find that they aren't considered deacons. Epaphras, for example, was associated with church in Colossae and was called a diakonos, but no translation regards him as a deacon. Timothy was called a diakonos in 1 Timothy 4.6, and he was associated with the church in Ephesus, but he was an apostolic emissary acting as an elder, not a deacon. So again, like we talked about when we started this study, the word deacon is a very general word for the word servant. Could Phoebe simply be one of the many ministers, servants in the body of Christ? Yes. So again, I don't think this part of the argument is conclusive either. Here's a third thought. What about the difference between the qualification of elders' wives and deacons' wives? That's a point that many people talk about in discerning what this word wives or women means. Well, those who would look at 
this text and say, I believe that deacons are both men and women, they would say something like this. Since there are no specific qualifications for elders' wives, well, then there are likely no qualifications for deacons' wives. Why would there be qualifications for deacons' wives and not for elders' wives? Especially since the role of elder is often the more public and influential role. Therefore, verse 11 must be talking about women deacons. It's hard to get into thoughts like this because we don't know exactly why Paul does what he does. It's not clear. This argument comes from an assumption of Paul's thoughts. And so we could suggest reasons on the other side for why Paul gave qualifications for deacons' wives. We could. The the people who would say, well, I believe it's men only, would say, yeah, Paul could have given qualifications just for deacons' wives if he wanted to, if the Spirit of God inspired him to do so. It could have been a specific problem in the church. And that's why he clearly addressed it. That could be a reason why. Or the wives' personal involvement, the deacons' wives' personal involvement in the unique and sensitive ministry of their husbands could be the reason. Private mercy ministry, material collection and distribution. Therefore, the wives of the deacons needed to be tight-lipped and faithful. So, you don't find... So in other words, you don't find an elder's wife coming up next to him and teaching alongside of him. But you do find many deacon's wives coming alongside of their husband and doing the work of a deacon. So that could be part of the reason. Again, either perspective is inconclusive. What's going to nail this for us? Right? That's, that's what we were working through here. Well, what about the function of the word likewise? Their wives likewise. Do you see that word, third in the, in the verse? Their wives likewise. Look at verse 8. Deacons likewise. The people who would say, I believe that deaconesses, or that, that wives means deaconesses, would say, likewise in verse 11 seems to signal another office as it does in verse 8. So you talk about the qualifications in verses 1-7 through of the elder. Then you come to verse 8 and we say, likewise, deacons. And then in verse 11, their wives, likewise, so they would interpret it as their, their females, their ladies, likewise, the female deacons. It seems to signal another category. However, again, the person who would say, Men only would say likewise doesn't necessarily signal another additional office, but simply another person whose character must be evaluated as we affirm elders and deacons. Again, it's inconclusive. You you can see it going either way. All right? There. Here's another part of the, the discussion. You look at verse 11 in the very beginning word there, their wives. There is not really there. It's not there in the original language. And so the person who would say men and women can be deacons would say, well, since there is not there to qualify the wives of the women, the women do not belong to the deacons as in deacons' wives, but rather women stands independently. They're not deacons' wives. They're just women. And they stand independently as a separate but similar office of women, meaning female deacons. Well, again, you have another part of the perspective there. There is not necessarily to signal a relationship between the women and the wives as deacons. The context is sufficient to do that. Just like some understand that women refers not to any woman, but only to women deacons, so others understand that these are not just any wives, but the wives belonging to the deacons. Again, you could see how the argument goes either way. So again, this is inconclusive. Well, when are you going to get to the conclusive one? Here it is, the final one. And I have to tell you, as I studied this years ago, I went back and forth and back and forth. No, it's going to be, it's going to be deacons' wives. No, it's, 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 it's female deacons. This is a difficult discussion. But again, it's important for us to come to a conclusion because it affects how we practice in the body of Christ. The thing that was most convincing to me was the sentence structure. Simply the flow of Paul's teaching here. There seems to be a similarity in sentence structure and characteristics between verses 8 and 11 
suggesting to us that they are two different but related offices. So, women means female deacons. A lot of people would say that. Well, verse 8 is a lot like verse 11. However, the sentence structure does not seem natural or fitting if women or wives refers to women deacons. It would seem like the qualifications for female deacons are wedged awkwardly into the middle of the qualifications for the male deacons and also are woefully insufficient compared to the qualifications of male deacons. Notice that. That's that's one of the things that disturbed me. As I'm reading this, you see verses 8 through 10, it's all about the qualifications of deacons. And then all of a sudden, right in the middle, you have a few words about the qualifications of female deacons, and then in verse 12, you go back to the male deacons. Is that how this works? And again, as I said, as we're saying here, there's only these qualities of dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded, faithful in all things. And look at the things that Paul tells the deacon to do. Hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, not greedy for dishonest gain. It's like, why just these four, Paul, for the female deacons and then all these other ones for the male deacons? And it's just wedged right in the middle of the qualifications for the deacons. Why? That doesn't seem to flow right. And so, let's say this then. If verse 11 is about female deacons, then why does Paul repeat only some of the qualifications that are required for the men only in different words and leave out some of the most important qualifications given to the men? Here's another observation. Let's look at it this way. You go back to verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified. Let's say that that word deacons, right at the beginning of verse 8, refers to both men and women deacons. It's the whole package. Let's say that. And that Paul breaks up the flow of thought in order to highlight some specific qualifications for the women in verse 11. And include the women from the qualifications and exclude the women from the qualifications in verses 12-13. through That's a possibility. But again, even if Paul is referring to both male and female deacons in verses 8 through 10, only the women in verse 11, and then only the men in 12 to 13, again, you have to ask the question, why does he only repeat some of the qualifications for women and not necessarily the most important, like holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience? Why does he need to repeat them at all then? Why does he repeat almost the identical qualifications if verse 8 is speaking deacons of both men and women? Why does he leave the female deacons out, here's another thought, when it comes to specific qualifications about family and home life? Doesn't he, he doesn't do this with widows on the roll in 1 Timothy 5. He, he says that woman must be one who has been faithful to her husband and born children and so on. Well, why does he leave the family qualifications out for the female deacons? That doesn't make sense with what he's written elsewhere. Paul seems to be signaling a return to the discussion of the qualifications of deacons in verses 12 13 following a short hiatus in verse 11 by once again using the title deacon. And that would make sense if the hiatus in verse 11 was not talking about female deacons, but rather about the deacons' wives. This whole section is about the qualification of the deacon. So if verse 11 refers to the wives of deacons, the most important qualifications for the wives would be their spiritual ability to minister faithfully alongside of their husbands as he ministers. And this seems to be exactly Paul's emphasis here. And it's so fitting. Paul continues to talk about the deacon's family then in verse 12. So, Paul starts talking about the deacon's family in verse 11 and continues to do so through verse 12. And all flows just as it ought and makes sense in context. So if we read and understand the text just as it is translated in the ESV, it seems to make the most logical, simple, and clear sense. We could say, well, why didn't you say that to begin with? The ESV got it right. Well, that would make it a lot easier, but 
I needed to know why. And I think you do too. And so we do not have to employ any sort of uh, any, any logical or interpretational gymnastics to get there. Also, understanding women and wives as deacons' wives fits perfectly with this flow of thought in 1 Timothy, as well as Paul's overall instruction to the Ephesian church about the role of women in ministry. So verses 8 through 10, he's talking about the character qualifications and the testing of the deacon. Verse 11 and 12, he's talking about the family of those deacons. How does their wife minister alongside of them? Are they a one-woman man? Do they manage their own children well? These things are essential for the qualification of a deacon. And then verse 13, he talks about the gain that comes to a faithful deacon. Now, one more thing before we get looking at the wives' qualifications. Does this interpretive conclusion mean that women cannot serve in the body of Christ? I don't want you to come away thinking, well... Women can't be elders. Women can't be deacons. Well, we don't do anything then. No, that's not the point of the text. In fact, Paul would, that's, the, that's why he's talking to the, about the wives of the deacons. And, and, and why he addresses the women in the body of Christ so very often. No, they serve the robust and faithful role of women in the body of Christ is biblical, it's historic, it's indispensable to the mission of Christ in the church. Note Paul's instruction to women, particularly in Titus 2. Remember that? The older women teach the younger women how to love their husbands, how to raise their children and to manage their home. Where does everyone who comes into the church come from? come from the home of a faithful mother who teaches them the Word of God. There's nothing that is more important into the body of Christ than faithful women teaching, I mean regularly teaching, discipling other faithful women so that all the women can teach the children the Gospel of Jesus Christ and see that Gospel accurately and boldly and clearly passed on in the home and godly character built. If you don't have that, you're not going to have a church. In God's design, the role of women is essential. In our family of faith, this changes having a position that says that verse 11 is talking about deacons' wives. That absolutely changes nothing about how our women are even now functioning in the ministries of the body. It doesn't change any of that. It just clarifies who God has called us to be. We're so grateful to the Lord for the gift of our women who teach other women and children and counsel and handle finances and serve Christ and His people in, in a hundred other ways. Aren't we so grateful for that? And this position is simply uh, means that we helping us to think of the office of deacon more narrowly than before and more specifically and more sparingly and employ it very carefully and only as the New Testament would clearly guide us to. So, let's look at this verse and observe then the qualifications of the deacon in terms of their wives. Let me get back to the verse here. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded, faithful in all things. First of all, there's, there's four. We'll, we'll move through these briefly. Dignified. Letter B in your outline, dignified. This word is exactly the same qualification that Paul gives for the deacon found in verse 8. You remember that? Likewise, deacons must be dignified refers to a seriousness that is worthy of respect. Not silly, not frivolous, flippant in mind and life. This doesn't mean that the deacon's wife is sad or depressed or in despair or skeptical or jaded or pessimistic. There's certainly a mature godly joy in her life, but that joy is accompanied by a seriousness about the message and the ministry of Christ in His church. She understands how her attitudes 
and her words and her testimony affects the ministry, the other's perception of the gospel. The testimony of the church is affected by her and, her, and, and the ministry of her husband is affected by her attitudes. And so she serves with her husband in his ministry as a deacon with a seriousness that attracts others to Christ. That's the idea. Dignified, serious, worthy of respect. A seriousness that motivates her to serve with excellence. This matters what we do, right? This matters for the cause of Christ with diligence, with godliness and the fruit of the Spirit. It's a seriousness that causes her to be responsible and dependable in her service. Sensitive and careful in the handling of private and personal issues in the church, and empathetic with the joys and sorrows of the people of Christ. It's a seriousness that the Holy Spirit of God supplies graciously to her because He's chosen her husband for the ministry of deacon. Second, not slanders. Not slanders. Let her see in your outline the second qualification here. The wife of a deacon cannot be a slanderer. This word slanderer that Paul uses here is really quite a shocking word. It sends chills down my spine in a way. When when Paul tells us that the wife of a deacon must not be a slanderer, this is something that we ought to take very, very seriously and be very careful in the affirmation of a deacon. Is his wife a slanderer? This word is the same word that is used many times throughout the Scripture as a title for Satan himself. The slanderer. John MacArthur in in his commentary put it this way, she must not be a she-devil. This word slander in the original is the word that you've heard often. Diabolos. Like, like the Lamborghini Diablo, right? A, a, a car named after a devil. A, a diabolical plan. A description for a horrible plan. It's the word for devil. It's the same word. But the word literally means slanderer. False accuser. It is, it is metaphorically applied to a person who by opposing the cause of God may be said to act the part or take the side of Satan. And that's exactly what a woman in the body of Christ or any, any other person in the body of Christ is doing when they slander other brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not a word to play with. When a person in the body of Christ uses their words to tear down the character of another and divide people in the body of Christ, that activity is the same activity that Satan does before God against the family of God. Do you realize that? Revelation 12.10 says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. The accuser of our brothers who accuses them day and night. We must be very careful to make sure that the wife of an affirmed deacon, by God's grace, is not a slanderer. Someone who would go to another person and and throw down the character of another behind their back. That's what Satan does before God. May the Lord deliver us from being people like that. The third qualification that we see here in the elder's wife or the, the deacon's wife is sober-minded. The wife of a deacon must be sober-minded. The word sober-minded means temperate, literally. Abstaining from wine, literally, uh, either completely or in its excessive use. Now, here's the thing about this word. This word is also used in a metaphoric sense, which would expand its meaning to include temperance in more categories than wine. And Paul seems to be going beyond the simple literal meaning of abstaining from wine or drunkenness to include being sober-minded in life generally. Let me tell you why. Here's the reason. 
Paul, when Paul wrote the qualifications for the elder, he gave us the word sober-minded. Look at it in verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded. Okay, so he gave us that same word there. And he gave us that word, sober-minded, in addition to the word in verse 3, not a drunkard. Okay, do you see? They're both there. And it would be repetitious if both words meant exactly the same thing. In other words, not to be intoxicated or addicted to wine. So in this context, Paul is using the word sober-minded to include temperance with wine, but also any other earthly enjoyment. Temperance. Sober-minded. What does that mean then? Well, the wife of the deacon must have a spirit-given desire and ability to restrain herself from excesses or controlling distractions that would captivate her attention and dull her mental alertness for service to her family and the work of ministry alongside of her husband in the body of Christ. That's what that means. Think, when you think of the word sober-minded, think of, think of a man sitting at the watchtower looking, guarding the well-being of a city, and yet there's someone over here doing magic tricks, handing him some food, drink. I mean, it could be anything. And he's like, oh, that's great. He's not paying attention. So many things in this earthly life can distract us from what is most important. And so Paul says, sober-minded. She must not be so occupied. The wife of the deacon must not be so occupied by the things of this earth that she would fail to see the needs of her family her brothers and sisters in Christ, and make efforts to meet them as God enables her. She must have a spirit-given ability to sense when some activity or enjoyment of earth is demanding too much of her mind so as to pull her attention away from the things that God says are to be most important to her. Seeking the Lord, serving her husband, serving her family, assisting her husband with the ministry of the body of Christ. And I know this makes sense to you ladies, because, and, and to you men as well, because we've, we've found ourselves there in the course of life. We say, man, this is, this is taking way too much from me. I am not in the Word and in prayers I ought to be. I'm neglecting my spouse. I'm neglecting my children. There's issues I need to take care of. And so, sober-mindedness recognizes that and says, I won't, I won't let myself go into these things and be controlled by them and intoxicated by them to the neglect of the most important things. Isn't that kind of a... That, that's kind of an ongoing challenge in life, isn't it? There's so much demand on us. And so the deacon's wife has to be able to recognize that and by the grace of God continue to be devoted and adjust and set her priorities again and again so that she is pursuing what is most important. And, and, and how do we recognize that in a, in, a, in a woman's life? Well, it's the same thing with either a man or a woman. Like I said back when we talked about that word for the elders, if you want to know if a man or woman is sober-minded or intoxicated with the things of this earth, you look at their attentiveness and commitment to their primary relationships. And you'll see. You'll know. A woman who is sober-minded will, will be seeking to fulfill the role that God has called her to as a, as a daughter, a sister, a wife, a mother, a grandmother in the home, and, and not consume with the temporal pursuits of this life. Things that are going to pass away with time to the neglect of her home. And so for a deacon's wife, that kind of sober-mindedness will overflow into her service alongside of her husband. And the final qualification that we see this morning for the deacon's wife, faithful in all things. Letter E, faithful in all things. The wife of the deacon must be simply trustworthy. That's the idea. Dependable. In all things. And that will indicate the extent of her fidelity. There's nothing mysterious about the meaning of this character quality. Trustworthy. She's trustworthy. You can count on her. To illustrate that, would what comes to most to my mind as I've looked at this, an illustration in the Scriptures would be Proverbs 31. Verse 11 of Proverbs 31 says, The heart of her husband, what? 
safely trusts in her. Her husband trusts her with their children, with their home, with his money, with his heart. You see that in Proverbs 31. She's trustworthy. She will not turn on him to ruin him. And verse 12 says, she will do him good and not harm all the days of his life. Isn't that a great illustration of being trustworthy? She will do him good. Well, sure, sometimes it's tough good, but it's for his good. And not harm all the days of her life. She's trustworthy. She is a trustworthy steward with all that she is entrusted by her husband. And you see many things entrusted to her by her husband in verses 13 to 31. She trusts him to clothe their family, to feed their family, to make purchases for their family, to work hard. She gives to the poor and the needy. She reserves uh, resources for hard times. She, she provides warmth in the cold. She cares for her husband's reputation. She makes and sells things. She, with her words, she's trustworthy. With her time, she fears the Lord. So in all these areas of life, she's trustworthy. The heart of her husband safely trusts in her. Safely trusts in her. And so God calls the wives of deacons to be women who will adorn well the message of Christ, the mission of His church, the ministry of her husband by her character. And again, as it is with the deacon or the elder, we're not talking about perfection. But this is talking about, Paul is talking about a work of grace in a woman's heart by the Holy Spirit, by the risen Christ. He's working in her such that her character has these qualities as its pattern. Yes, she will fail. Yes, she will go back and adjust. Yes, she'll ask forgiveness. Yes, she'll grow, be growing. But here's a pattern that's happening in her life. And it's recognizable. One of the commentators said this, the wives of deacons must be as committed and serious as their husbands, as in control of tongues and attitudes, as self-controlled as a faith, and as faithful, for them to be responsible laborers with their husband. Beloved, listen to me. When we as a body of Christ will work together year by year to affirm deacons and elders, both, we must remember that we cannot separate the spouse from the man whom we are affirming. It go, they go together. They go together. That is a difficult thing. But let's trust the Word of God with this. Let's trust Him to know that, that, that Christ has put the plan out clearly and for our good and for His glory. I think Proverbs or Psalm 14, verse 1 speaks directly to the home, but the principle could certainly be applied to the ministry of a woman's, hus or, uh, of a, of a woman's husband and even a local representation of the household of God. Here's, here's what Proverbs 14.1 says. The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. And the wives of elders and deacons will do one or the other of those. And so may the Lord enable us, may He grant to us elders and deacons whose wives build the house and not tear it down with foolishness. And again, we're, we're totally dependent on Christ for this, aren't we? The risen, ascended, reigning Lord. He is sovereign over the building of His church. Because the office of deacon is a critical role in the body of Christ, we must affirm only those men whom the Holy Spirit has chosen. As we close this morning, I wonder, is the call of this text and the things that we've been talking about, are these things vitally important to you? Is the faithful preaching of the Gospel vitally important to you? From this pulpit, around the world, from our ministry partners, from your lips, 
among our church family, into our community, is the faithful, clear, bold, accurate proclamation of the Gospel important to you? Is the faithful pursuit of godly character with Gospel proclamation and service important to you? Do you Are you passionate about not only getting the Gospel out accurately to, to dying souls in our community each day, but is your character, your lifestyle that accompanies your attitudes, your words, your actions, is that important to you as, a, as an accurate and faithful adornment of the Gospel that's coming out of your mouth? Is the character and life of our elders and our deacons and their wives and our members important to you? These things are very important to our Heavenly Father. He's the head of the household, right? We're His household, like the text says. They're important to the Son who gave His life to redeem us from false doctrine and, and lifestyles of sin. These things are greatly important to our living God whose church this is. All you have to do is open your Bible and look at what God has been doing throughout the centuries in the world through His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the church. And look at what He promises to do yet in the future to bring all things to His decreed finale. Sometimes you just sit down and think, what is God doing in the world? And why am I so wrapped up in things that don't matter all that much? Doesn't that, I sit down sometimes and think that I'm like, what am I doing? Look what God has been doing in His church. Think of this, beloved. The church is at the center of God's redemptive work in the world. Jesus Christ is the King reigning over us. And He has chosen to use people to build His church. It's amazing. It's arresting. It's astounding. It causes the fleeting things of this earthly life to grow strangely dim, doesn't it? If these things are truly important to you and your desires and life are growing in the same direction toward which this text is nurturing us, then I want to encourage you and I want to say to you that the risen, ascended, reigning Christ has already begun His work in your heart to accomplish His will and, and carry you along in His glorious plan. Your future is bright and certain. You are part of something that will not fail. So I urge you to pray. Be praying, beloved, as we walk through these texts one by one. Pray that God will fill the hearts of your family members and fellow church members with accurate gospel truth. And labor to that end. Work to that end. Develop within your own lives. Pray that God will develop within your own lives and your family members and fellow church members Christ-like character that will adorn the gospel well before the eyes of your children, and the world. Pray that God will call from us deacons, elders, deacons' wives, elders' wives, and that He will make all of us into gospel-filled Christ-like servants for His glory. Pray that, again, we're coming to a wonderful text in 14-16, through 16, pray that, that, that our privilege and our calling and identity as God's house and His the church would, would consume us. That it would fill us daily. And, and that we'd be given ambition and ability to live what God is doing through the world. Through the church for Christ and for His glory. Let me flip that around on the other side. If the call of these texts are not really that important to you as you hear them and understand them, why not? It's not really that important to me. If, if your default and typical response to the things of the Word and the church of Jesus Christ is one of apathy, why? Why is that? Dear friends, as you hear these things, don't fool yourself into thinking that all of a sudden you're, you care about it right now when 
the pattern of your life doesn't demonstrate that you do care about the message of the gospel and the mission of Christ through His church. May God enable us to see ourselves rightly. Maybe you're playing house. Is that possible today? You know, in every, in every group of people that are sitting under the Word of God, there's people that are believers, there's people that are unbelievers, and there's people that are pretenders. It's always there. The Word says. We're playing, are we playing church? Maybe, maybe you're playing church. Maybe you have been pretending to be a Christ follower for a long time and have been going through the motions because it's, it's part of the culture that you've been brought up in. But an honest look at your heart and your life would show you that you prefer the identity with the world. You your, your leading ambitions are characteristically the same as the world's. And you don't see in your heart a competing desire or an overriding desire that battles against the desires of the world and that is the desires of Christ at work in you. You don't see that. You're all about the world. If that's you, I want to urge you this morning to turn to Christ. You need salvation. You need a new heart that can desire and love the eternal things of God. Listen to what the Apostle John wrote, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, where do those desires come from? They're not from the Father, but they're from the world. The world's passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. If your heart is filled with the desires of the world and you have no competing spiritual desires, you need to be born again. Because God begins to put spiritual desires for eternal things in the heart of every one of His children. I want to urge you to get into the ark of Jesus Christ. Remember, we're on a timetable here. The end is coming. The end of this world, the temporal things, and the church will remain because we're in Christ. His righteousness is our dress. His cross is our atonement. His resurrection is our life. His intercession and reign is what keeps us and sanctifies us. That's not some small power that is a great power that's working in us to will and to do for His good pleasure. And if you don't have it into you, in your heart, at work, turn to Christ. Put your trust in Him alone. His righteousness. His death. His resurrection. His work will save you. And when He returns, you will be brought to fellowship with the church forever. And you will know the love of your Father forever. It's the only safe place to be when Christ returns. Here's one of my favorite gospel promises. Listen. John 6, 37-40. Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Do you hear that? If you come to Christ, trusting in Him for salvation, He will never cast you out. Why did you come to begin with? Because He's working in your heart to bring you to come to Him. For I have come down, Jesus says, to heaven. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, who sent Jesus, the Father's will, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Do you hear those promises? Everyone who comes to Christ and trusts in Him will be received, kept, given eternal life, raised, and enjoy the glory of God forever. Children, that goes for you too. Did you hear those promises? If you trust in the Son, you will be kept. 
You will be received. You will not be turned away. The Holy Spirit can enable you to come to Christ to turn from sin, to turn from self-righteousness and trust in Him alone. And then we can grow in the knowledge of the Gospel together and be prepared by God's Word to be a faithful, godly people in His church. Fulfilling the work of the, of the Word. Fulfilling the Great Commission. No matter what happens around us. Isn't, isn't God, our Savior, good? How in the world did we get to be part of His church? Just by His grace. He's so good. The alternative is unbearable. Right? Oh, how good God is. What a glorious Savior He is. May He enable us to bring glory to Him. Let's, let's praise Him and thank the Lord and pray together as we close. Father, thank You for putting together a people for Your name all the way from the beginning that we read in the Scriptures till now. You are calling out a people for Your name. May we be enabled by Your Spirit to behave like Your people like your children, like your family. Father, what a glorious calling and privilege this is. I pray that if there is someone here this morning that, that has not yet turned from sin, from self-righteous dependence, from the world to you, I pray that you would summon their heart. Turn the lights on, Father, in their mind so that they can see the glory of the Savior. Turn the lights on that they can see how to trust Him for salvation from Your wrath and be given the gift of eternal life. Father, do this. Save us. Sanctify us. And we say, come Lord Jesus quickly and glorify us. We thank You. And we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.